My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to teach. We are in part two of a mini-series called We Are Ironwood. If you are here with us this week or online this week, you have next week, which is Christmas Eve and Christmas Eve services. Then we have the 31st, so you only really got two more chances after today to come to Redemption Church Gateway before snooze you lose, and we'll be Ironwood Church starting on January 7th. And so we figured, changing the name, we wanted to clarify and double down on who we are and what we do. Last week, Luke Simmons, uh, the other teaching pastor, taught about who we are as Redemption Church and who we're going to be as Ironwood Church, which is that we are people with soft hearts and steel spines. That's what we are or who we are. I'm teaching today on what we do. What is the point of this? Why waste our time once a week when we could be sleeping in or doing whatever when we're doing this? Why get engaged versus stay disengaged? Why do this rather than watch YouTube? What's the whole point uh, of what we got going on here? So why are we doing what we're doing? What's the point? What's the benefit? That's what I'm talking about today. And a big part of that has to do with this idea of strategy, right? So uh, my wife and I, whenever we go to some party in some place, we have to like sync up ahead of time and say, all right, what's our exit plan? Because I'm not trying to just be here an awkwardly long amount of time. Like, what's the word? What's the signal? What's the get out of here? Uh, because we need an exit plan. I'm an exit plan guy. We have, we have a sign at our house. It's a welcoming sign. It says, welcome, leave by nine. So we just want people to know we have a plan. Get on board with the plan. At 9.01, you'll be asked to leave. Or you could just leave at 8.55 and not be asked to leave. That's totally fine. And so, but when you think about going into the next phase of the church, but not just the next phase of the church, but the next phase of the world in a dark and darkening culture, what's the plan? What's the strategy? Are we just kind of going willy-nilly week by week? Are we feeling it out? Are we just testing the waters? Or do we have a playbook that we're running from? Is there a script to follow? And so one of the things we have to ask ourselves is, uh, has there been a time in history similar to this time? And if so, what did God say to the people then? And the scripture reading from today out of Jeremiah 29 is a letter to God's people who are marginalized, uh, they are sent into Babylon, into exile, low cultural influence, low cultural power, uh, increasingly kind of that experience of being behind enemy territory. And so how are we to behave as exiles in a world that's getting closer and closer to a Babylon-like reality? No matter how bad you think or don't think American or Western culture is, I promise you Babylon was way worse. And so we're not trying to just make it and survive, we're trying to actually thrive. And so what I'm going to talk about today is uh, Armored Church's strategy for thriving in exile. And it's really got five parts to it. Number one, uh, we're going to enjoy Jesus together. Number two, uh, we are going to fight for kids and families. Number three, uh, we're going to bring light to the darkness. Number four, we are going to give it away. I'll clarify what it is in a little bit. And number uh, five, we serve like crazy. Not mind-blowing, revolutionary stuff, but nonetheless, the less the script for faithfulness in a dark and darkening culture. And so I'm going to teach this text a little bit and talk about those five points. Let's pray together and we will dive in. Holy Spirit, please soften our hearts and open our ears. I pray that you will help us be captivated uh, by the uh, playbook you give to the exiles in the book of Jeremiah and that we might find strategy uh, in that similar place. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so point number one, we enjoy Jesus 
together. There are three big words there, enjoy and Jesus and together, right? We, we are natural, tell people about what we enjoy type people. So here's what we mean by that. Jesus isn't just somebody we believe in, but somebody we delight in through worship services, small groups, care ministries and counseling. We encourage each other to enjoy Jesus. Like we are by default as humans, joy sharers, you find out about a good deal, you tell someone about it. You find out about a good uh, restaurant uh, in, insider scoop, you tell someone about it. Like if I was going to make for you my, the Seth Trout food pyramid, right? The FDA has theirs, which is debatable, but I have mine. It's the, the bottom of the pyramid is beef and the top of the pyramid is burritos. Those are my two, like 85% of my caloric intake, beef and burritos. And some people know that about me. And so when they hear about awesome beef and burritos, I get a text about it, right? So my buddy Mike texts me the other week. He says, hey, because uh, I've talked about this a couple of times from the stage before, the best place to get a burrito in the area is Topo Burrito, right? I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a gopher on top. I get no kickbacks. It's an honest just endorsement, right? So it's on Gilbert and Elliott-ish. You go to Topo, get a smoked pork burrito. It's the, the best. Uh, or let me rephrase that. It's almost the best. What would be better is if it was beef instead of pork in there, you know, but... Not everybody can hit home runs all the time. And so it's, but, so Mike finds out a way, if you order it through Joe's Farm Grill online and say swap brisket for the chicken, then you can get a brisket burrito from Topo Burritos. And it was like, I don't even need any more Christmas presents because it's the best. So he's had it three times, told me about it. And it's not like someone had to go tell him, hey, if you really like this burrito, you need to tell someone about it. You know, because do you love your friends or not? It was just like natural excitement and enjoyment leads to evangelism. That's what evangelism is. It's telling other people good news. If you really think it's good news, you tell it to people that it's good news. See, sometimes we think that church and gospel is like recommending people eat more broccoli for colon health. Hey, I know this would be totally unfun, but I think it would be healthy, so maybe give it a shot. That is not the gospel. (laughs) The gospel is God himself, the pinnacle of goodness, truth, and beauty, has come near in the person of Jesus in Christmas, and he has made himself known, and he's available to be known, and he dwells with us, and he encourages us, and he guides us, and he leads us, and he perfectly has revealed God to us, the Father who loves us and teaches us. And guess what? You don't have to fix yourself before you come to him. Come on down. It's a good time. He actually teaches us how to flourish to the highest degree that's even humanly possible because he's the creator and he's written the blue book, the playbook. Come on and check it out. That this is the pinnacle of actually intimacy with Christ is when you start enjoying him, not as just an ought or a should, but as a want to. That I think that nobody actually gets converted to Christianity out of pure fear of hell. Hey, who wants, to go to, who wants to not go to hell? Raise your hand. Christian, now you're a church. That's, I don't think that's how it actually works. I think what happens is people uh, recognize that the false gods they've been placing their whole identity in aren't where it's at. And they start looking. And they hear about the God of judgment. And they fall in love with the person of Christ who loves them and gave himself for them and invites them into walking with him their whole life. I think that true conversion happens out of love for Christ, not just fear of divine retribution. And we are here as a church to stir one another up into that love, into that good works. 
that every aspect of what we have going on here as a church is rooted in a desire to address one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Part of the strategy in Thriving Exile here, it says pray to the Lord. That sounds so basic, but it's actually the bullseye for Christian faithfulness is prayer. To live our lives before the face of God to pray with them about our day-to-day lives, to pray on behalf of others. And the songs we sing, prayer is set to music. In one sense, all of preaching is just training in prayer, how to interact with, speak with, and walk with God. Now, this is the point of these worship services, that we need to be encouraged. Like, if there is one thing that someone was gonna walk into our church and think, those people are nuts, I think that's a cult, it's when people are worshiping God and going like this. Like, yep, this is emotionalism. Those people are out of their minds. Who goes, like, but then you go and watch any major sports gathering, any famous person's concert, and you know what people are doing? Yeah, go team. They're saying, oh my goodness, Taylor Swift. Like, it's just, it's reflexive, embodied excitement. Yes, and that's part of what we're doing here. It's, it's like, we're kind of like people, but we're also kind of like a beehive. You know, we're trying to swarm together and encourage each other and be excited together because that excitement is actually contagious. And so on the days when you need encouraging and you stand next to someone who's belting it out singing, you're being encouraged. And on the days where you're just come pre-encouraged and you're singing, you're building each other up. That one of the commands in the New Testament is to address one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We're not just singing to the Lord, praising his name. We're also singing to each other, encouraging each other, building each other up. That not only that, but just the centerpiece of our worship services is the Lord's Supper, where we get to taste and see that the Lord is good and celebrate and center ourselves on the gospel. This is why we do worship services, not because we can't think of something better to do on a Sunday, but because we're trying to build one another up as worshipers and praisers of the Holy One. We're starting, November, uh, starting in January 7th. We're gonna have three service times. Here's, here's what they are. They're 8.30, 10, and 11.30. And this is the last hurrah of the 4 p.m. service. And I know for a lot of you, that's mostly a bummer. And I feel that. Like I drove with my kids and my wife this morning, or not this morning, this afternoon. You know, we, on the mornings I drive separately or they don't come because they come to this one. And it's like, oh, last time we drive together with the family. That's a bummer. You know, I, we have a little meeting, and Jay comes to the meeting sometimes and sits there, and we talk through it. Oh, last one today. And a lot of you are here because we asked you to move for the mission, and so thank you so much for moving. You rebuilt your schedules, and you showed up for this thing, and uh, now it's changing, and you have to redo your schedules, and that, that stinks. And I just really know I share some of that with you. Uh, I would love it if you just picked one of these to go to. Ideally, you'd go to 1130. I know most of the young adults are gonna slide over to 1130, so if you like their energy, go to 1130. If you don't like it, go to a different one. So there you go on that one. <laughs> but I've been thinking and praying pretty deeply about this week, doing some research uh, on some of my favorite Christian, uh, not really Christian, let's say Christmas philosophers. Uh, and here's one of the things they said about Christmas, is uh, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is by singing loud for all to hear. Like we sing loud, like this is, some of you 
don't sing loud because you don't think you sing good. And I just want you to know that's true. You don't sing very good. But that's not the point. The point is not to sing well. The point is to sing loud. Make a joyful noise is the command we're given to the Lord. And some of you, uh, you barely make a noise, right? So Buddy's dad at the end of the movie gets rebuked by Buddy's little brother. He says, Dad, you're not singing. You're just moving your lips. And I think we have too much of that in our church. The goal here is to sing and to spread Christmas cheer. Even if it's not Christmas, guess what? Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We can do this every single week as we gather together and celebrate together. So that's both a Merry Christmas and an Every Sunday deal. Uh, number two, we fight for kids and families. Families are one of God's first and best gifts in a world that minimizes families and kids. We fight for them through programs for kids and students as well as resources for marriage and parenting. There's two senses here uh, to the word fight. One is we fight to care for and disciple the kids that we have and the families that we have. Right? We have hundreds of people serving every single week in kids ministry and in student ministries. Loving them well. Like adding to the web of gospel relationships that are building up and raising up the next generation of leaders in this church. Right, they're not the next generation, they are the current generation, but they are the next generation of leaders. And people are giving lots and lots of time to care for and encourage parents and uh, uh, kids who are trying to, we're trying to fight for them. But it's not just fight for them, but it's also uh, fight to have them in the first place. Right, like marriage is, as far as popularity goes, is just doing this in the culture. Having kids, as far as popularity goes, is doing this in the culture. And we as a church can unashamedly say we're pro-marriage and we're pro-kids, right? We need to celebrate that. Like part of the exact explicit script given to God's people in Jeremiah 29, and so this is especially if you're a young person in this room, and by that I'm going to say like probably 34 and under because that includes me. Uh, but uh, if I was honest, I'd probably say like 29 and under. Uh, but we're, we're trying to say, what is, what is God's will for your life? What are you trying to grow up and do? What's the point of that? And this is the script right here, uh, chapter 29, verse 5. Build houses and live in them. That could be translated 21st century culture. Uh, get a mortgage. Plant gardens and eat their produce. That could be translated 21st century. Start companies. Get jobs. Uh, number six, take wives and have sons and daughters. That could be translated, get married, have kids. And then take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they might bear sons and daughters. Multiply. Live your life in such a way that you will have the trajectory of thinking, I want to be a good grandparent. Like this is like basic, normal, Genesis 1, God's instruction to his people. Like grow up, get a job, get a house, get a spouse, have kids, playbook. Right? And in a culture that's like, I don't know if I want to get married. I don't know if I want to have kids. Especially like you young adults, high school kids, middle school kids, I'm saying, you should want to grow up and have kids. And here's the deal. Is there are exceptions to every general principle. And I don't want to go on the long list of all the possible exceptions. But they are the exceptions. They're not the norms. Right? It, wanting to get married and not getting married is a very strenuous, difficult, straining thing worth grieving and lamenting. Wanting to have kids and not being able to have kids is excruciating and unfun and the worst. The very fact that those things are so painful is just evidence that like the desire of them is a good thing to desire. 
So we grieve with those who aren't able to do or get what God has generally said we should try to aim for, but we don't in any way want to pretend that that like erases like the ordinary thing that we should all try to aspire for in our lives. So if you're looking for like a parenting playbook on what you want your kids, it's like get a job, get a house, get a spouse, try to have kids. Like it's, it's very basic. That's not the American dream. That's not just Western assumptions about the arc of life. No, that's like basic biblical playbook for thriving in exile. That if we want to build a community in the midst of a dark world, we have to have a community to build. You can't disciple kids who haven't been born. <laughs> not only that, but this leads to this next piece. We are the light in the darkness. We are seeking to bring light in the darkness. All life is all for Jesus and he's forming us into faithful disciples in every area of life through classes, digital resources, and other formational experiences. We learn to walk in his light. One of the calls that's given to the people here in Jeremiah 29 is in verse seven. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord's behalf for in its welfare you'll find welfare. That word welfare there is the word shalom, well-being, flourishing, overall goodness. That we should seek the flourishing, the peace, the welfare of the environment in which we've been sent. That's beyond, but not limited to, or not excluding, church activities. Right? This is about like being engaged in PTOs. This is about building cultural pockets that are healthy. This is about advocating for and engaging the world in such a way that we're trying to bring about the conditions that help people thrive, not just within the church, but outside of the church. This is being a light outside of the four walls. This is seeking the welfare of Babylon, which is an anti-God world. Should Christians, like if you think about it like this, like the word city is like the word metropolis. Polis of metropolis is policy, which comes from politics. I'm not talking about selling our guts for a Democrat or Republican on the federal level. I'm talking about the grassroots way that we can be meaningfully engaged in building a better world in the circle in which we've been sent. You want a recipe for like resisting the empire of Babylon? It's love and engage your neighbors, have kids and build houses and multiply them. But that also includes telling Babylon the truth about itself. Babylon thinks it's like good for people and the prophets of God are here to say not good for people. That the world apart from God does not actually know what welfare and human flourishing is because they don't know God. Part of our job is to shed light on darkness. And that certainly includes here. Right? There are different cultures throughout the world that are more or less incubating of human well-being than ours. And this is the reality that the lighting, lighting up the darkness begins with us and it moves out from there. Because if, as Luke talked about last week, having a soft heart and a steel spine, that if I don't have a soft heart and a steel spine, I am the biggest threat to my children. We like to spend all this time thinking about the threats outside of us, but most often, if we're not actually walking in faith and repentance with God, I'm the biggest threat to us. Like as our households, we tend to wreak havoc if we're not actually walking in humility with the limp before the Lord. And so this isn't just about doing podcasts that expose the undergirding philosophy of the secular idolatrous world. It's also about helping each other just repent of the darkness in our own hearts. Judgment begins with the household of God is what uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter. 
And that's true for us, but it begins with the household of God. It doesn't end with the household of God. At some point, we have to speak reality to Babylon and say, you are actually destroying humans, not causing them to flourish. That word fight also comes here from Jude, the book of Jude, nice short little book. I just want to read the first two verses because this is who it's talked to. Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James, to those who are called, that means all the Christians, not just the leaders or the apologists or the, uh, uh, the pundits, um, those who are called, beloved in God, to the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered for the saints. This call to contend for the faith is not a call just given to bishops and elders and preachers. It's a call given to all of God's people to fight for the faith, to promote it, to encourage it, to shine light on the darkness. This is the church's call as a whole that we are meant to be the light in the darkness that exposes what's been going on. Like this is, I don't know if you noticed, but people have been putting these like lights on their houses. They call them Christmas lights. All right. I wonder what percentage of people know why they're putting Christmas lights. Is it because they just like the aesthetic? Is it the vibe? Right? Like, but it started as a picture of Christ being the light in our darkness. That the world was dark and getting darker, and Christ broke in the light of the world. And the people love the darkness rather than the light. And part of our job as a church is to say, we need to stop pretending like the world loves the light because the world loves darkness. They can re-explain your Christmas lights to your kids uh, when you go home. All right, number four, we got this. We give it away. God's love led him to give his very best, his only son. We imitate his generosity through investing in young leaders, planting churches, and partnering in Jesus' local and global mission. The it and give it away is everything. It represents an instinct towards generosity that I think is deep in the guts of our church. It's one of the first things I noticed about this church when I came here uh, just over seven, maybe eight years ago was this instinct to generosity. Oh, here's me in the community, able to like, open our wallets really fast. Oh, here's someone in the church who's struggling, people surround and give. Oh, here's a different church that like, in, in marketing terms or in business terms would be a competitor, give them money so they can keep doing what they're doing. Like there's this instinct towards generosity with time and talent and treasure that I know is in the staff and in the core and in the church as a whole. And that generosity, just like excitement about Christ, is frankly contagious. And it's super great. Like our church has, uh, in general, um, been given uh, a lot of money as people uh, contribute tithes and offerings to the church. But, and people give outside of our church like crazy in a lot of ways that we don't really keep track of. But we as a church, like our community, uh, of the money that we're given, we give a bunch of that money away. And so I did some spreadsheeting this week, which is basically a great way for me to feel claustrophobic. Like if there's like three lines on my spreadsheet, I just feel like, Stuck, you know, so, but I did spreadsheeting for you all so I could come up with a number. I went back and looked, how much money has our church given away uh, over the years? And I told it up, and here's the number. It's 3.735607. 
That's a lot of money that our church has given outside of our church. Like that represents a major, that's like storage equipment for other churches, sound equipment for other churches, uh, immigrant hope, like uh, Compassion International, like not Compassion International, Compassion Queen Creek, like uh, pro uh, life centers. That's like women's shelter. Like there's just a variety of things. This is all just the stuff formally that we have on paper. I'm sure it's a lot more than that that you've all given that we haven't funneled through the church. But we want to continue to give and have an instinct towards generosity in, with our whole lives. And here's why I think we've had an instinct towards generosity as a church. It's because like, the rhetorical answer to this question is something that we all like, actually really believe. So this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. He says this, What do you have that you did not receive? And I think that when you really see the sovereign hand of God at work in our lives, you can have a quick answer to nothing. And when you actually answer that question the way that Paul wants you to answer it, you develop an instinct towards generosity that I think is a beautiful picture of grace. A lot of times generosity looks like grace with skin on. Blessing, gift. The word charis could be translated grace or gift. That when you see and sense that we've received so much, we're quick to give in a variety of ways. And last one here, the ways the church really want to uh, keep in our normal cultures, we serve like crazy. We serve, we engage. And we don't just serve for ourselves, we serve for a deeper purpose. And in a world that's obsessed with self, we follow Jesus in the way of service. We mobilize volunteers to use their gifts and grit to serve the church and community. One of the things that's going on here in this text, Jeremiah 29, is... Uh, they're writing to confront false teachers that have been bombarding Israel with their various messages. And I want to read some section here. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. The question is, what were these false teachers saying? Hey, what's the false thing? What's the big lie here? Well, if you read the rest of Jeremiah, what the false prophets were saying is it's not that bad or it'll be over soon. They're putting positive spin on exile. And God is saying, nope, it is that bad. It won't be over soon. He goes on to say this in Jeremiah 29.10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, then I'll visit you, then I'll fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to the promised place. 70 years. So these people are called to plant gardens, eat produce, build houses, get married, have grandkids, have great grandkids, and they're not gonna see the fruit of this welfare for minimum 70 years. The question is, if we follow this general wisdom and we say we may not see years of welfare for 70 years, that dramatically changes the horizon of where we lay, lay, lay the foundation of calling success or not success. Right, because if the idea here is we're setting a goal for 70 years from now, then that means that maybe 10% of the room is gonna be around to help us realize that vision. Maybe 20% at this service. <laughs> Most of us, like in 70 years, that'll put me at 103. And it's like, 
you know, I, I had a couple old grandmas in my, in my family line, you know, but like probably not going to be around 70 years. Some of you, no offense, certainly not 70 years. Some of you up in the front, maybe, you know, don't smoke or something like that. You know, like you might be around, you know, but like certainly all the leaders will have changed over three or four times. Certainly like the, we've had to, you know, repaint the building a couple of times. I don't know if you repaint metal or not, what a retreat the building. Like there's like we got, but if we're thinking about we want to be thriving in 70 years, then like we're talking about multi-generational discipleship goals, we're not thinking about how was this sermon, how was that song. We're thinking, are we putting bricks in a foundation that my great-grandkids will flourish from? We're thinking, are we creating resilient, gritty disciples who will pursue Christ no matter where the culture goes? We're talking about, are we training people to pass the faith on to their grandkids and their grandkids' grandkids? Because this is, this is the picture given to God's people in exile is you all won't see the promised land uh, the pro- you, but your great grandkids might and so you better pass the faith on to them. The church is always one generation away from extinction and the good news is the gates of hell will not prevail against the mission of God's church but the bad news is many of us like will plant seeds and never get to see the fruit until the new heavens and the new earth when we stand with the Lord on the last day. And so we serve This is like the the why here. It's not just because like the church has functions that it needs fulfilled, but because the church exists to birth and strengthen healthy disciples and we are all here playing a role on that team trying to build it up. I did some, uh, a different spreadsheet this week and I tried to total up the average number of people serving every single week here at the church, right? I'm talking about small group leaders, men's, women's, uh, fifth grade, student ministries, kids, guest services, security team, like all these various types, tech team of people serving. And here's the average number of people serving here every single week at the church. It's 723. That's a lot of people. And here's, here's what that means, I think, is like these are not just bored people who are like, please give me something to do. These are people who are in some way or another trying to invest in the mission of the church uh, in more ways than just cutting or writing checks. See, if you want to grow in love for the church, you have to invest. If you want to be invested, you have to invest. That's how, that's how it works. That actually, so often, we think like, I love Christ, but the church is like, meh, but the church is the bride of Christ. It's the people for whom Christ died. This is the vehicle of God's mission in the world. And we are building each other up. We like to think that once the heart has the affections, then the, the actions of love will follow. But actually, most of the time, the, the heart follows the hands. That I serve, and in serving, I grow in affection. That in caring responsibility, I grow in grit and investment into the church. See, I like, one of my favorite things is going on date nights with my wife. You know, you have, uh, you go to a place and you sit down at a table somebody else set with drinks that somebody else poured and a menu somebody else prepared and the waiter or waitress comes by and you 
tell them what you want and they say, yes, sir. And then they leave and they come back and there's food and there's this uninterrupted or like barely interrupted conversation with my wife and I and it's pretty great. And then the best part of it is, is when you're done, you just go like this and somebody else cleans up all your stuff. That's a good time. But it's, but there's something like differently or even more meaningful about like an extended family dinner. Like at my parents' house, right? I, I'm the oldest of four. Now like a couple of them have kids, significant others. It kind of like the clan is growing, right? And it's like, who's bringing the meat? Who's bringing the veggies? Who's bringing the dessert? Who's bringing the wine? Who's bringing the water? Who's setting the table? Who's doing the dishes? Who's like uh, cleaning up the house beforehand? Who's holding the kid when it cries? Who's changing the diaper? Who's playing smack you in the face with a four-year-old until they like, can't take it? Like who's, like who's, like this is like a, it's a group project, right? Everybody's chipping in. Right, there are times where at family dinner, like there's a random guest and you're not like, what, you didn't bring anything? You, you're a terrible guest. That's not how it works. It's like, but like the family all chips in and provides something and then there are some guests. And I think that as our church continues to grow and as we get uh, more and more like generally wealthy as a group of people, that the big temptation for us is to uh, not view the church like a restaurant and instead view the church like a family dinner. That there are chores, that there are contributions, that if you want to grow in meaningful affection for the church, like it's con- contribution is part of the way that you discover your place in the local body. Like if you're like lonely and looking for a place to connect, sometimes you find that in a small group where you kind of sit around in a circle and ask how everybody's doing. But some of the richest, most impactful community I've seen here are people who are serving and loving each other in the trenches whether it's setting up chairs or serving coffee or holding crying kids so that parents can sit under preaching, like this is a family dinner, not a restaurant. And so if you are a guest, please act like a guest. If you are not a guest, please act like part of the family and do something. Like this is part of building each other up, that we serve one another in love and that's part of stirring ourselves and each other up. And this is not just about the church needs stuff done, but it's also about our hearts need to serve in order to grow in our way of Jesus. And that can happen in a thousand ways, in a thousand different seasons of life. But to build one another up through serving each other in love, this is what separates the church from just a slick YouTube video. It's the in the flesh, in the room, support each other, carry responsibility for each other, helping set the table, helping do the dishes, whatever the, however far you want to take that metaphor. That's what we're trying to do here. And so uh, I actually have a QR code for those of you who would like to serve. You go ahead and take your phone out right now and scan that if you'd like to. I can just make up a joke on the spot. No, if, if you want to serve, please do it. I'm telling you, if you want to get connected here at the church, probably the best way is to serve somehow because uh, some people can't handle like a whole nother night of the week eternally claimed. That's totally fine. But sometimes you can uh, show up and help uh, get things going even as we switch to the morning services. So as we even come to the Lord's Supper, the focal point of our service, like I want you to think about that if you are watching online or here in this room, you have been served today by probably close to 100 people. Someone set up the chair, 
Someone broke the cracker. Someone poured the juice. Someone tuned the sound. Someone set the lighting. Someone cleaned the room. Someone held your kids. Someone worked on the parking lot. Someone prepared a sermon. Someone learned a song on guitar. Like, like we are all being served by each other like crazy. And even as you hold that little thing in your hand, it's not just being served by Christ, but it's also being served by the body of Christ, which is the church. And if you've served the church in some way, like think about, I served a lot of people today. I got to imitate Christ in serving others today in a pretty impactful way. That the church is as healthy as to the degree that we love one another in serving one another. And that often looks like formal roles, often looks like non-formal roles. But at the end of the day, we're all just trying to stir one another up to love and good works and be like Christ. So those five things we're doing, again, none of them rocket science, none of them innovative, none of them like totally different than any other church. But it's the basic mission of the church to birth and strengthen healthy disciples that reproduce for generations. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're just trying to be faithful. So let me pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will uh, encourage us, build us up. God, as we sing, let us remember the words of the prophet, Buddy the Elf, that we would encourage one another with songs and hymns and we'd spread Christmas cheers. we sing loud for all to hear. Uh, God, quiet our hearts and help our excitement be contagious. In your name we pray, amen.